I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We are continuing um, our series of sermons in the Ten Words, or sometimes referred to as the Ten Commandments. Um, tonight we march along, and as is our custom, um, we will be also reading from the opposite testament. In this case, the book or the New Testament, and um, in this case tonight, the book of Titus. So would you listen closely and carefully to this God's word? Um, I will read the fuller context in Exodus, but we will focus tonight on verse 14 in particular. Just listen closely and carefully to this God's word to us and for us. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And from the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11, 12, maybe 13, 14, I might just keep going. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, at the reading of your word, first we ask that you would bless its very reading. Lord, secondly, we respond by saying thanks be to God as an acknowledgement of how badly we need you to speak to us, to feed us. Lord, as your people, we are aware we do not live by bread alone, but we live from the words from your mouth. So we ask in your kindness and in your mercy, you would do the thing that only you can do. Would you take this, your word, the words that I prepared, and would you use them to great effects in our heart and in our lives? 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I've mentioned this to you before, but I love the city of London. I've had several opportunities to travel there, to study there, to work with church leaders there. And there's lots of things about London I find really interesting. The fact that it's one of the oldest cities in the world is interesting to me, but there's lots of things I find interesting. But one of the things I find most interesting is the tube, which is London's subway system. Now here's what's interesting about the tube to me. Whenever you're walking around the streets of London, what you can know is right underneath your feet. There is an intricate web of tunnels, of trains moving back and forth. There are actually platforms that are very deep in the ground that then take you to escalators that travel you even deeper into the ground, which takes you to escalators to travel you even deeper into the ground to get onto new trains in new tunnels to take you to all kinds of other places throughout the city. And I say that to you today because the Bible is actually a lot like that. Let me explain. So whenever you're reading your way around the Bible, you can know, okay, you can know that underneath the words, so in the case of tonight, underneath these five words, you should not commit adultery, underneath those words is an intricate web, if you will, of tunnels and trains and escalators that take you even deeper to new platforms and new trains and new tunnels, which takes you even deeper and deeper and deeper to all kinds of other places throughout the scriptures. And I say that to you tonight because my goal tonight is to invite you on a ride where we are gonna travel deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into these five words. So you might be tempted to think these five words don't necessarily apply to me at this moment, but I wanna show you that they probably do. So tonight, we're gonna to travel to some layers. In fact, that's how I'm gonna organize this sermon, level one, level two, level three. If I were taking notes on this sermon, I would write level one, I'd write a few things, I'd write level two, write a few things, and on we go. And what I hope to show you in the time we have together is that in Jesus, there is hope, there's mercy, there's grace that in Christ, a way has been made for you and I to live holy and chaste lives. That's the main thing I want you to hear tonight. In Christ, a way has been made for you and me to live holy and chaste lives. If you don't know what the word chaste means, I'm going to explain. Let's talk about these five words one level at a time. Level one. The words are you shall not commit adultery. Here's level one. Now, level one, I would call the number one person level. And let me explain what I mean. 
This level one layer is the level of this text that our world actually would agree with. See, our world has a certain understanding, a certain definition, a certain vision of what marriage is. And in the world that you and I live in, yes, in Birmingham, Alabama, and all kinds of other places in our country, the world that you and I live in has the following definition of what marriage is. In our world, marriage is essentially an emotional connection that exists between two people. A particularly strong emotional and relational connection that exists between two people. And two people in our world's understanding of marriage have kind of signed up to pursue this particularly deep emotional connection to each other. And to pursue it with intensity until maybe they don't feel like pursuing it anymore. And our world would understand these words, you shall not commit adultery, to be about severing this emotional connection that exists between two people. In other words, our world would understand that an act of infidelity causes great emotional pain between two people. So therefore, it kind of makes sense for this prohibition, do not commit adultery, because it can cause an emotional trauma or or pain in a person's life. And that is all true. But as Christian people see, the truth goes a little deeper. So let me talk to you about level two. See, level two I'd call the comprehensive level. And let me explain what I mean. See, as Christian people, we actually believe a lot more about marriage than it's just about an emotional connection between two people. Now, it certainly is that, but we believe even more. So in a Christian way of understanding marriage, marriage is a comprehensive union between two different people, male and female, and they enter into this comprehensive bond of sharing their life together. This bond at level two is emotional. It's also physical. It's familial. You start families when this bond is established. It's financial. It's legal. It even changes the very nature of who you are. See, this is what the Bible means when a, man, when a man and a woman leave their father and mother and become united to one another. The scripture says that in that moment, they become one flesh. It's a strong idea in the Old Testament. It's a mysterious idea, but it's that they become one person in a deeply mysterious way. Here's the way I like to think of it. The border between a husband and a wife or a wife and a husband, the border between them, though it still exists, is incredibly porous. It's more like a chain link fence than it's some kind of brick wall. Does that make sense? So let me give you kind of a lighthearted example. Um, Mandy and I will have been married 18 years in October 
And the blurring of lines between what's Mandy and what's me has become kind of porous. So I'll give you an example. Mandy is very organized. She's a perfectionist. Um, In our home, and this is no exaggeration, in our dishwasher, the place to put all the silverware and utensils is labeled with a Sharpie. Small spoons, big spoons. Small forks, big forks. And then my favorite, a category in the middle that's called everything else. (laughs) And this is very efficient, see? Because you always know where to put stuff, and when it's done cleaning, you just pick them all up at once to then put them where they need to go. See how I'm helping you guys out today? (laughs) Because for Mandy, efficiency, organization, kind of perfect little systems, like really rule in her heart. This is no exaggeration. I was recently at a friend's house, and I opened the dishwasher, and I began to look for the labels and they weren't there. And I wanted them. (laughs) Like I longed for them. Like I like that we live that way. You see how we've kind of done that? Now now I hope I've influenced her too. (laughs) But what this text tells us at level two is that acts of infidelity cut very, 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 very deep into the fabric of who we are. Both for the person who has done the wrong and also for the person who has become the victim of the wrong. But for the Christian, see, it goes even deeper. So let me explain to you what I call level three. I call this the theological and spiritual reality level. See, because for a Christian person, marriage is not just an emotional connection. It's not just a comprehensive union body and soul, but marriage is also a profound theological and spiritual reality. See, the Bible teaches us that marriage is a sign. Marriage, when a husband and wife are married, their life is a sign, it's a pointer. That points actually, the Bible teaches us, mysteriously to the love that Jesus Christ has for his church. See, the Bible will reveal the God that you and I worship as kind of the most perfect example of a lover. And that's not abstract, that's very real. He loves deeply his people. And see, in this level, what we learn is that acts of infidelity tell an enormous lie about God's character. See, at this level, an act of infidelity says that the God, the God that you serve, oh, by the way, he's a promise breaker. Oh, the God that you serve, 
is fickle, trades out people if he wants to dispose of them because he's not interested in them anymore. See, acts of infidelity at this level announce to the world that our God is somehow wayward or uncommitted or prone to abandon. It's an enormous lie because he's nothing like that. But in the scriptures, see, it goes even deeper. And I'm talking about level four. I call this the freedom level. So we got the number one person level, the comprehensive union level, the theological and spiritual reality level, and now we have what I'm going to call the freedom level. See, acts of infidelity misunderstand freedom. Y'all, there's this enormous lie in our culture. It's an enormous lie in our culture. It's, It's an enormous lie in our culture. It's maybe the biggest lie that exists in our culture, and that is really saying something. But see, our culture tells us this lie, and you hear it, you see it, you breathe it in by existing in this culture. And by the way, it's not new. This lie was told to the Greco-Roman world, the New Testament. It was a lie that was told in the ancient world, the Old Testament, apparently. And here's this lie. That if we loosen or, or untie ourselves from constraints, we'll actually be free. That somehow if we can untie ourselves from any kind of constraint of any kind of desire, we'll actually find freedom. Like our world actually tells us, and we actually believe it, that if we click that, scroll there, touch that, pursue that, daydream about that, let our minds wander there, act upon that, we'll find this glorious thing called being free. And there are too many people in this room that could call out what a crock that is. Because you experience the pain of the lie. See, the Bible will tell us exactly opposite, that constraints are the path to joy. The Bible will tell us over and over and over again that when we chasten, when we chasten, which means restrain, when we chasten our impulses and desires, either sexual or any other kind, when we chasten those desires, we'll find true and lasting real joy that can't be taken away from us. And not just that, but then we can actually enjoy real life pleasure See, to let our impulses and desires run free gets us on a train that we cannot get off of that leads us to destruction. But the scriptures and the Bible will take us even deeper. There's three more levels, by the way. This fifth level is a really challenging level for me to talk about. 
But this fifth level is the we are all adulterers level. See, to this point, you might have thought, well, I haven't actually committed an act of infidelity, at least not with a real person. So, but let me explain. See, in the scriptures, our disobedience to God will be compared, especially by the prophets, as like adultery. See, God's people's waywardness of all kinds, either sexual sin or any other kind, would be compared as us being, you know, the spouse, if you will, of our Lord. And for us to commit infidelity and adultery against him. And the Bible presents God as this lover who's jealous for the affections of his people. See, Jesus takes this up to another level, doesn't he? See, remember, it's Jesus who says... If you've ever looked at a woman, or we can extend that to say a man, with lust in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. Jesus will say things like, if you've daydreamed, if you've fantasized, in sinful ways, that you've already committed adultery. Jesus actually, to some smug, self-righteous religious leaders, will call them a crooked generation of adulterers. So in other words, when they look at this level, this fifth level, we start to see that these simple words, you shall not commit adultery, is actually about an entire posture of purity in every area of our life. One of the things you learn about God when you start learning about him and start following him is that he's so pervasive and invasive and wants every part of you. There's no part of you that you get to keep when you're dealing with this God. He's looking for a people who have clean hands and a pure heart. And it isn't interesting that the hands and the heart are the metaphor in that text. Because when it comes to acts of infidelity, it often starts in the heart and travels to the hands. The scriptures will teach that we're all adulterers. And there are those of us in here And I think at this point, all of us in here, we know it, don't we? See, these five words, you should not commit adultery, went from maybe a few people in the room to 170 people in a room. So praise God that if you're a Christian, things go even deeper. 
There is no pit so deep that God's grace does not travel deeper still. So just listen to me. Listen to me just tell you of the way the Lord God deals with adulterers. His words, not mine. There's a place in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, where God's people's unfaithfulness is described like an adulterous wife in that case. And it's just at that point, midway through the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, midway through that book, you can go read it. It's just midway through that book when you think God is going to say, well, then forget you, I'll be done with you. Here's what he says instead. I'm going to confound you because I'm going to atone for everything you've done. I promise it's in there. See, it's in the book of Hosea, which is a parable about an adulteress and the prophet, which is a bigger story about God's love for his wayward people. And there's a place where he promises to restore And he says he'll go so far to remove the names of the false lovers from his people's mouths. There's the book of Jeremiah that we've traveled to so often in this sermon series that one day God will make a new covenant where he will take hearts of stone and he will turn them into hearts of flesh, which means like beating hearts that can please him. And that one person won't have to say to another, know the Lord because they shall all know me. See, it's Psalm 103. It's Psalm 103 that says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And he remembers them no more. I don't actually think that's an immediate thing. I don't think God's saying there that in the midst of our sin, we'll immediately feel free of it. But I think what he's saying is he is committed to cleansing you and me. You see, it's the Bible that will teach us that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin, or to to forgive us of our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, repentance This is something John will talk about Wednesday. Repentance does not mean you don't face consequences. That's not what it means. But it means there is a way to be restored and come alive again. It's the book of Titus. You heard me read it earlier that says, the grace of God has appeared to us that it might teach us to say no to ungodliness. I told you a couple weeks ago that more can be healed and redeemed than you know. And what I'm here to tell you today is more can be healed and redeemed than you even know. The good gifts of God that await you on the other side of confession and repentance are unspeakable. The Spirit's power which goes to work in your life The book of Revelation says that you and I are like a bride being made ready. The book of Revelation teaches us that one day we will see Jesus' face. In other words, five five simple words, you shall not commit adultery. 
Five simple words. You might have read that or heard that as kind of this random command. Ha. It's the deepest invitation to the deepest joy you can know. And it can be yours. Let's pray. Lord, our prayer would be that you would do what you've promised to do, that your grace would teach us to say no to ungodliness, that it would train us to renounce worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, even as we wait for your appearing. Lord, I ask that you would redeem, that you'd restore, that you give to us the gift of Repentance and faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.